Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. The world is fascinated by spirits. There are numerous movies that are made. There are books that are written about demons and angels out there. And Hollywood loves to take their creative license to create these kind of movies. In the 90s, there was a movie called The City of Angels, and it started uh, with Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan, I think. And this is a movie where angels can choose to become humans, and they can do things like fall in love, eat apple pie and ice cream, and go swim in the ocean. But if they crossed over and became humans uh, in this particular movie, you could not go back to being an angel again. And I remember watching this movie and thinking as a teenager, you know, I don't know a ton about angels, but I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. But then I started wondering, well, could it be possible? Okay. Well, most people in our society get their understanding of the, the spiritual realm from movies and books. And since these are made with, like I said, the creative license, the public is often misinformed. And it makes them wonder these questions that I wondered. But angels angels and demons are real creatures. They're part of history. And we know this because the Bible reveals that very truth. In 2017, I had the privilege of traveling to Uganda to teach theology to evangelical free church South Sudanese uh, pastors in exile who fled from their civil war in South Sudan to the refugee camps in Uganda. There were about 100 of them who had traveled long distance from different countries even to come and hear this long week seminar. And many of them were pastors of small churches scattered throughout the refugee camps. Some met under trees, some met under tin roofs, and some just met on the ground just wherever they can find it. And we covered many different topics from uh, the doctrine of creation to the return of Christ from about 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. daily. Now, what was really interesting to me was the difference in what they considered were pastoral concerns versus ours here in the U.S. One of the most common concerns that was raised was not on how to effectively minister to all the different age groups in a church or how to deal with church growth, but on what to do when demon-possessed people came into the church, which was a common occurrence to them. And that's when I knew, in the words of Dorothy, that I was not in Kansas. And here's what I want you to know. Angels and demons are real. They're not just imaginary creatures, and their actions affect all of us. But I also want you to know that God is more powerful, and he is sovereign, and you must not live in fear. Satan and his demons seek to deceive you. They attack, they disrupt, they destroy the very image bearers of God by entangling us in their snares. Here in America, we don't often see the kinds of demonic attacks of the highest level that the pastors in Uganda or in South Sudan would experience where they would actually physically possess these people. But the enemy is smart. Every context calls for a different tactic to destroy the enemy. World War II was a, largely a conventional war, but Vietnam War required unconventional tactics to fight the guerrilla insurgency. 
The Persian Gulf War was a symmetrical warfare where U.S. forces went toe-to-toe with Saddam's forces. But the wars we engage today are fought more asymmetrically against our enemies through cyber, psychological, and even economical means. Likewise, spiritual warfare is no different. Every context calls for a different tactic. The demons will find that laying a siege of physical harassment is more effective in places like Uganda and other parts of Africa and even South America. But they'll find that the tactics of psychological warfare, of influence, will be far easier and more effective in places like the West. There are already people in people of power in influence and physical traps in place for demons to easily use to manipulate the nations. Drugs, pornography, social media, destructive and deceptive progressive influence, all of which will lead to an entanglement in their deliberate ambush. Whether it's through the physical harassment or means of influence, their mission is to deceive and attack mankind. Their mission is to keep us away from our Creator. Maybe this morning, you or a loved one has been a victim of one of their ambushes. Maybe the demons have successfully deceived a loved one to live a life of self-destruction through substance abuse or an addiction. Or they have been deceived into believing that happiness comes from being able to do whatever I want to do with my life. So now they're living a lifestyle of homosexuality or premarital sexual immorality to fulfill their desires of the flesh. Or maybe you or your loved one is being swayed by the demonic influences of our culture today and are wondering if you feel that you're of a different gender then maybe you should change your God-given gender to reflect your true feelings. Whether it's through their physical attacks or psychological influence, the demons seek to mutilate and destroy physically and spiritually the very image of God which we bear. Hear me clearly. The demons are real. We are their enemy. And the billions of deceived souls out there are the battleground. So this morning, we're going to dive into a passage in our series in Mark that gives us an insight into some of the creatures of the spiritual realm. You see, the reason why the world is so fascinated by the spiritual realm is because they know that it's true. They know that it's there, but they don't know much about it. This is why people create movies and fictions about angels and demons with their imagination. And they dabble in things like tarot cards and even Ouija boards to invoke the spirits. So if you want to learn about demons, where should we go to learn? Well, if you want to learn about history, you can go to the encyclopedias. But if you want to learn about an invisible, the invisible spiritual world, then we must go to the source, the Bible, the very book which our Creator has revealed to us about the spiritual realm. The sermon is titled, Three Beggars and the Master. And we will see three beggars and the master who bears the ultimate authority. The beggars are the demons, the victim, and the people. So through the beggars and the master, we will see only Jesus, 
who is the God most high, can rescue sinners from our hopeless entanglements. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. This is a story of a man possessed by demons, and it comes to us immediately after Jesus calmed the storm. We saw last week that Jesus taught, uh, he turned this mega storm into a mega calm, and the result was the mega fear of the disciples. And the passage answered the question, who is this man, Jesus, as it highlighted his authority over creation and the inability of the disciples to perceive who his true nature was. Well, this morning, as Jesus and the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee, we're going to see an example of how the God Most High shows mercy on hopeless, entangled sinners. So join me in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. We're going to read five verses. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, <clears throat> excuse me, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one, you can highlight that word, underline, circle, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. First notice the location of the city, Gerasenes. Okay? Now we're told by Mark in verse 2 that Jesus, he was approached right away as soon as he crossed the sea. And then when he got out of the boat, it was close to the shore. But here's a problem. Gerasa, which is Gerasenes, is about 35 miles south of the lake. Matthew, in chapter 8, verse 28, identifies the location as the country of Gadarenes, which is also about five miles south. And neither of these places have a great cliff where a uh, cliff or a sea where uh, pigs can actually dive off and jump into. So what do we do with this location? The name of the location appears in different manuscripts as Gerasa, Gadara, or Gergesa none of which are really superior. And I want to show you in this map. Notice where Gerasa is in relation to the lake. It's about 30 miles due southeast. I don't have my pointer with me, but it's right under the word Decapolis there. That's Gerasa. Okay, it's about 30, 30 miles. And this whole region is called Decapolis, which means 10 cities. And what we know about this region is that it was largely a Gentile area. And there were Roman garrison, there were Roman troops, the Roman army, who were likely the ones who were buying these pigs for food. So Mark, who was writing to, the, to a Gentile audience, likely knew about the culture of Gerasa, or Gerasenes, where the Roman troops purchased pigs. So it's possible that he used that name generally to remind the audience the, the importance of these pigs and their association with this region. You can take the slide down. It's kind of like this. Uh, last summer, I went to Boston with my family. We took a trip to uh, Boston on the East Coast, and we took our dog, Leo, with us to see all kind of historical sites, because that's what you do in Boston. And when we tell people about our trip, we say, yeah, we went to Boston and we stayed in Boston. Okay? But 
We actually stayed about 20 miles outside of Boston to avoid traffic and the $300 fee of being in the city. And if you're an American, okay, you're familiar with the culture and the city, you understand the cost of staying in the city uh, and why we avoid actually staying in Boston proper. Well, likewise, it's possible that Mark's reference to Gerasa or Gerasenes has in mind the Gentile audience who knew, who knew uh, what the, these pigs were used for and the culture during that time. So they would have understood, though it didn't take place exactly in Gerasa, that this culture was what was being referenced. The other option is this, that there was a town called Gergesa that existed on the northeast shore of the lake, also called Kersi. And this is where there was a suitable steep bank where pigs can fly to their death. Okay, let me go to the next slide. Okay, so you see where Gergesa is? Right on the east side of the Lake of Galilee, right? And this would make sense because it's right off the coast and there was a, even a cliff. And some early church fathers like Origen and Eusebius even identified this town to have uh, the place where this miracle took place. Well, either way, this event, likely, uh, this event took place likely somewhere on the other side of the boat, close to the shore. Okay? We can bring the slides down. So imagine the scene here. Imagine the scene with this man. It is a picture of total hopelessness. That is what is being described here. He lived in the tombs, which made him unclean for anyone to approach him. The chains and shackles can't help him, and they point to the spiritual chains under which he was bound. The man had no rest. He was screaming night and day as he was in misery. And this scene shows that no one, no one could help him. So who are these impure spirits that are torturing this man? Let's keep reading in verse 6. In verse 6, we read that when, he's, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on, a, on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. These are the demons. And here is the first point in our outline. We see beggar number one. And beggar number one is the demons who beg Jesus not to torture them. We're going to spend a bulk of our time here in this first point in order to gain a, a biblical understanding of who these demons are. So who are the demons? Throughout the Bible, we get a glimpse of these spiritual servants called angels. And also we get a glimpse of Satan and his demons. We get the most details about, the creation, uh, about their creation and their fate through the first and the last books of the Bible. 
Genesis and Revelation. Satan and his demons were once angels created to serve God, but later sinned and became evil. Here's what the Word of God tells us about Satan and his demons in Revelation 12. So turn with me to Revelation 12, the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12. This is a passage that uh, Karen read for us earlier. And we read in Revelation 12, verse 7, this vision from the Apostle John. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Jump down to verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Check this out. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Now jump down to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Angels are created beings who operate mainly in the spiritual realm in our midst. They serve God and carry out his purpose as ministering spirits, as messengers, as worshipers, protectors, and even warriors, as we see in this chapter. But the Bible tells us that Satan and his angels rebelled against God and waged war in heaven. So they're no longer God's servants, but rather they're now his enemy. So Satan and his demons are on earth carrying out their purpose to deceive and disrupt God's plans. Jude verse 6 tells us, The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept, he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. 2 Peter 2.4 also tells us that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So where are they? Are they in heaven or, I mean, are they in hell or are they on earth? There are some who interpret this to mean that there are some demons who are already in the lake of fire. Now you can dis disagree with me on this because we don't know the full picture of how the spiritual realm works, especially for demons and angels. But these verses seem to speak generally of all the angels that sinned, which are Satan and all his demons. And so these seem to be true of all demons. Their current operating environment is no longer in the direct spiritual presence of God, but on earth. And their current state in the chains of darkness, awaiting their final judgment to be cast into the eternal lake of fire, is in part hell because they're no longer experiencing the love of God, but rather they're experiencing his partial wrath. I say partial because in due time, they will experience the fullness of his wrath forever in the unquenchable lake of fire. Their judgment has been declared and their destiny has been secured. 
Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. And he is the chief of all the fallen angels. The word devil means slanderer or accuser because Satan is a liar and the father of lies, according to John 8, 44. Demons then are the fallen angels that support Satan's evil plan and his rebellious activities against God here in this world. This is who they are. Let's see how they attack. Join me in Mark 5, verse 6. Mark 5 again. Mark 5, verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out to the, sea, to the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down and steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Here we see the next beggar in this outline, and that is the victim, the demonized man. The demons are identified as legion. Okay, a Roman legion was a unit of the Roman army that, that numbered around 5,600 soldiers. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he had 5,600 demons in him. Rather, the term was also used to mean a generally at large number. Today, we would say something like, he had an army of demons. When we look at this demonized man in Mark 5, the technical expression that is used to describe him is to have a demon or demonized. And we see different degrees of affliction. In Matthew 12, 45, Jesus spoke of the evil spirit who goes and bring with him seven other spirits more evil than himself. Here in the case of this man, we see the highest degree of demonic attack, which we often call demon possession. Notice from the passage that this level of attack is characterized by supernatural strength in verse 4, we see that he was able to break the iron chains and shackles and no one was able to subdue him. We also see self-degrading and self-destructive acts. Verse 5, he was cutting himself with stones. They're attacking the body, mind, and soul, which is how you and I as humans, we bear and reflect the very image of God. And he was screaming night and day in the tombs, which tells us he wasn't sleeping, as he was tortured by these demons. By far the most destructive quality we see in all of this is a loss of self-control. In verse 7 through 12, they're talking through the man's vocal cord. And they're even able to possess animals as we see them entering into pigs and falling off cliff. Not only that, their desire to remain in that region seems to indicate they have a regional preference. The victim has been filled with demons and lost control, all control of himself. Even today, when you go to large cities, you go to places like Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, uh, even here in Wichita, if you see a large population of homeless, 
you'll often see these kind of behaviors from those who are especially addicted to drugs like meth, uh, PCP, and fentanyl. And though their attacks in America may be conducted through their influence of drugs and other addictive habits, the result is the same. A loss of self-control, self-destruction, as they attack the very image of God. This example of the highest level of demonic attack is sobering and it's real. But can demons possess people today like we see here? People often say that, you know, this was about 2,000 years ago. Demons probably don't function this way. But can they? As believers who know the power and the capability of Satan and his demons, we must be careful not to attribute every evil act to the work of the demons. There are other forces at play, including our sin nature and human responsibility. There also may be medical conditions, which may be a cause. And the scriptures clearly distinguish the difference between medical condition and a demonic attack. But there are cases which seem to be only explainable by demonic attacks. And nothing in scripture seems to indicate that their work has stopped today. Paul's call to put on the full armor of God is a clear warning that they are even active and alive today. So what can you do in case of a demon possession or when a loved one has been deceived by them to live out a lie? God has created humans as spiritual beings in physical bodies so that we can affect both the physical and the spiritual realm as his representatives. Through our union with God in Christ and with other believers through the Holy Spirit, we can affect change both in the physical and the spiritual realm through prayer. This is why prayer is so powerful. Because when you pray, you are invoking the creator of heaven and earth, whom we can call Father, and he hears your prayers and he will respond. Persistent prayer of faith is your most powerful weapon when you encounter demon attacks or when dealing with a loved one who has fallen into the snares of their destruction. In times of spiritual emergency, here's the rule. You stop, drop, and pray. But most of the demonic attacks we will see and experience are those of lower degrees. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, we also see the Apostle Paul having a demon. He writes, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Just like the Apostle Paul, we are still susceptible to their lower levels of attacks, which can come in many different forms, often through temptations, self-doubt, depression, anxiety. These are just a few. So can Christians become victims of the highest degree of demonization or demon possession? Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has, says, has said, I will live with them 
and walk among them, and I will be their God. Church, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The demons shudder at the presence of God. And if you are in Christ and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, then the demons want no part in trying to possess you. You can see how they responded in the presence of Jesus. They know that the Holy Spirit in you is the Spirit of the God Most High. This is why the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 and 6 to not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit and to put on the whole armor of God. See, we are a vessel. We're like a glove. And we were designed to be filled with the Spirit of the God Most High to represent Him in our full armor of God. When Jesus transforms us by His Spirit, we are given a sound mind, and the dignity that is inherent to us through the image of God is preserved. We read of the man's state of sobriety and self-control in verse 14. Join me in verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And here we see our third beggar, and they are the people. This is a supernatural encounter where Jesus just drove out these demons. Yet the people were afraid, like the disciples who who were on the boat with Jesus when Jesus calmed that storm, and they begged him to leave. But why? Jesus was seen as a, a man of great disruption to them. He broke all social norms and status quo to save this one man. And this is a picture of Jesus leaving the one sheep or leaving the 99 behind to pursue that one sheep. But to the crowd, he had caused a great financial loss to their region. And he was making people uncomfortable. See, we must be willing to forsake the treasures of this world for the sake of the kingdom and his righteousness. In the war between good and evil, there will always be casualties and collateral damage, like the loss of pigs in this case. But as disciples of Christ, we must value what our Lord values, and that is the precious human lives created in the image of God over the worldly riches. Whether it's protecting the lives of the unborn who bear his image, or seeking to win the hearts and minds of those who have been deceived by the lies of our culture today with truth and grace, or even seeking to share the hope of Christ with those in the streets or in prison so that they may be delivered from the work of Satan and his demons. We must see all people as the battlefield for the kingdom of God and call on the name of Jesus to help us in our war, not of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit. When God prepares their hearts to hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit penetrates the gospel truth into their hearts, then this is what Jesus does. Jesus calls sinners 
to follow him through a radical transformation. And he pulls you out from your entanglements of this world like he did with this demonized man by giving you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Though you may not have complete victory over some of the sinful habits, the, the Spirit of God who dwell in you will empower you to kick those habits over time as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the master with the ultimate authority who calls you to rise from your spiritual death to life. And he's the one who commands the demons to flee. And he's the one who calls you to walk in the power of the Spirit. This kind of transformation is what we see at the end of this story. Let's see in verse 18. Join me in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went on and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The man's life was changed because of the master. He was hopeless, but he was now rescued. He was once lost, but was now found. He was once blind, but now he sees. His response of begging was a genuine desire to accompany Jesus. And Jesus' refusal of the man's request was not a negative rejection, but it was a positive opportunity that was unique to this man in that region to tell the world of the mercies of God. Though it was not in Jesus' plan during his temporary earthly ministry to have him accompany him, we today can become his disciples and follow him. So this morning, if you have not known Jesus or don't know what it means to follow him, I invite you today to follow him, to stop and pray and follow him. And this morning, maybe you're struggling to be freed from a snare that has entrapped you. Or maybe it's your loved one who has been deceived by the lies of the demon. May this story of deliverance encourage you to turn to Jesus in your hopelessness and recognize that only Jesus, the God Most High, can rescue you from your hopeless entanglements. Only Jesus can rescue you from your hopeless entanglements. And if you have been delivered from an entanglement of the devil by Jesus, then go tell the world just like this man who had told the world of how much the Lord has had mercy on you. Your testimony is unique to you. God has given you your story to go share with the world that others may leave their entanglement by the power of God to turn to him and follow him as you follow him. Mark has shown us through the story three beggars who came to Jesus, the master, to plead with him. The demons the victim, and the people. Satan and the demons are real, and they will do everything in their power to kill, steal, and and destroy God's image bearers until the day of their final judgment. But Jesus has complete mastery and authority over all of our entanglements, and he can bring order to chaos. Call on Jesus and turn to him 
who alone is the God Most High, and he will come to your rescue in times of your need. Let's pray.